Hello and welcome to Horus Heretics episode 47. I'm William. I'm Neil. Today we are discussing Shadows of Treachery, which is a collection of short stories and novellas all just jumbled up together. And Neil, just before we started this, Neil pointed out that he was like, yeah, this does not seem like a thing that was planned, really, and he's... Totally. Absolutely right. It's pretty interesting, actually. There's a, there's an afterword at the end of my version of it by the Laurie Golden who edited this. I, I, I just want to break in now that if it's not in the book, I'm not reading it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Feel free. This could be your task. In the, the division of labor in the podcast world, you can read all these fucking epilogues and all this nonsense. If it's these not some... in the text, I'm not doing it. These are some of my favourite bits, though, because they speak right to stuff that we always speculate about, like the sort of the Black Library writers' room and uh, Dan Abnett being the big, being the sort of the head, yeah. not the head honcho, but he's the the big beast. Him and him and Graham McNeil basically walking, and everyone's everyone sort of hushes and waits for them to speak first. But um, the yeah, so basically, a uh, what this says is that this was put together, and there was a couple of novellas, so. They were talking about how it's quite interesting because they're acknowledging that it was almost like they'd fucked up a bit of the story at one point with where Sigismund was meant to be, right? So they had to. And anyway, they said that basically they were realizing that things were getting pretty complex by this point in terms of in terms of uh, they needed a lore master. They needed like a character sheet and a lot of pins and red string. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. and um, but basically they were like. So originally, I think it was going to be the next novel that was going to be in this place in the series but they were like no we have like certain stuff has to happen now so this collection is bookended by two novellas so we'll cover one in this episode and one in in the next along with obviously the short stories that occur in between so they were like yeah i think we need to get those out but the rest of it is made up of short stories that appeared in like various forms up to this point what does it say like one that had been the like in the the dark King and the Lightning Tower had both been published in the 2007 Games Day event chat book, then later recorded as Horus Heresy audio dramas. And there's other ones that were like, one was written for uh, Black Library Games Day anthology 2011-2012, and another one appeared in another what it refers to as the Howard Pages of Collected Visions. Um, <laughs> Good. Yeah, so I, just, I, yeah. I, I like that. I also think it's very appropriate that the Black Library would produce something called the chat book. That, that's very appropriate. Next, <laughs> the next format will be like a book of hours or something like that. You <laughs> yeah, know, I fucking love that. <laughs> <laughs> Fully illuminated special. Yes, <laughs> hand illuminated. So let's get into it. Given that, given what I've just said, what we're going to cover in this episode is actually surprisingly thematically coherent yeah um, very much for something couldn't really be completely thematically perfect it really hangs together and feels very nice so do you want to get into the first novella then Neil? yeah sure this is uh the crimson fist by john french and of course we have a prologue some sad fellas being chased by a beast brothers helios and alexis they're clearly aspirants to a legion and they're going through their final trial helios was always the strongest the best the fastest alexis bit of a bit of a second second runner and also a bit of a whinger 
and Alexis is saved one final time. There's a bit of a, a story about being chased by a beast. He's fallen down. Helios saves him, and then the beast attacks again, and somehow something, it, all this silly nonsense happens, and they're left in a sort of cliffhanger, literal cliffhanger type thing, where Helios is uh, hanging off the edge of a cliff, and Alexis is holding on to him, and Helios throws himself off to save his brother and Alexis very sad cuts to a long time in the future where Alexis Pollux he is our uh, hero of the piece and the weaker sprint in the prologue he is an imperial fist and he wakes up from this dream that he had just been having about the past and he's like floating in a vacuum and you're not quite sure what's going on. He's got no memory. Bits of memory come back to him and he realises he's an imperial fist. He realises that stuff. He sends out a looping request for help. And he sees that like he's in a, a ship, the wreckage of a ship. And he sees more out in space that are just burning. Hundreds of dead warships just floating in the void. All his brothers seem gone. And then finally, as he's just about to pass out from the cold... Some of his brothers come along and gather him in and see them. He is part of the Imperial Fist fleet that is sent by Dorne after he discovers the treachery. And if you remember, he sends an Imperial Fist <laughs> fleet. This is going to be a troublesome one. And also the fleet of the three loyal legions. I think it's the Salamanders, the... Iron Hands and the Raven Guard, all to Isfan in order to punish Horus. And obviously, they find out that there are far more traitors involved and they get destroyed. But they are part of that fleet and they set off from Terra, sent by Dorne, and they get lost in this these warp storms. And the, it's those storms that like destroy the ships and force them out of the warp and as they come out they're all like fucking battered and they're surrounding this place called Fal and they're just like what the fuck do we do we've got these orders to go on to Istvan but we've just lost tens of thousands of imperial fists it feels like a trap it feels Horus has uh, turned against the emperor He's turned to chaos, and now we can't even get through the warp. This seems uh, too much of a coincidence. Uh, Alexis Pollux, he's given command, and he decides, in the face of some opposition, to fortify around Fal, because he thinks that this is a trap, and he wants to make a defensible position, basically. And a lot of his brother space marines are like, we have to go on to Istvan. The Primarch, the Emperor, has ordered us uh, to go there and he has uh, stood up to them and said that they won't do that. And that's when we go to... We cut to Terra in the Imperial Palace again. Yeah. And this... Yeah, and like the whole thing with Pollux is like... As the sort of... The, the, the story from his youth is, you, you told at the start is that he, he's not, what would you say, he's not like the the glory of the Legion or anything like that you know what I mean, but he was yeah. like he was well suited to this moment basically I think is what he's saying because he ends up being the right decision to defend in a way and so yeah it goes back, so you're, we're on Earth and it's 
Sigismund. And so this is the thing, like I was saying in, in the intro, that had they they'd got wrong because like somehow <laughs> Sigismund was meant to be somewhere out like Istvan. I guess it might be with his fleet, uh-huh. but he'd also in a story he'd also been like back oh. on Mars or something. So is this retconning what we're reading now? Is this like them? trying to fix that well yeah i think they're realizing what well, he can't possibly be in those two places at the same time so yeah. let's so he, have him come back to that's very uh, interesting so i don't think actually i don't think they have like as far as i know they haven't actually retconned something that appeared in the books but they've retconned their original plans to yeah, have him yeah sure that's um, fair. i think so he's back on earth and dorn's building his big walls around the Himalayas and all that <laughs> and and he's it's quite some quite good stuff here because Doran's like this is he's I, didn't uh, he what he's doing sorry didn't Sigismund say something like this is some amazing work and he's he says no this is destruction yeah yeah I think there was talked about like one building being taken down brick by brick and like they're hoping they can rebuild it one day because yeah. it was like in the way of where the defences had to go or something and it was like some magnificent piece of architecture and Dorn's all like he's not he feels really shit that he's having to basically bring all this stuff down in yeah. the name of building these defences and uh, and Sigismund's basically like he's got this sort of cryptic secret he's like a bear tell Doran about this at some point <laughs> yeah he, he they, which is what we just said that he was sent to to lead this fleet that Pollux is now leading he is meant to be at the spearhead at Isfan and he's here and he says why I am here and Doran basically just goes well you told me why and I see no reason to question it and Sigismund goes yep that's fine absolutely but in his head, you hear his like internal monologue. He's like, there is another reason. That wasn't a lie, but he's clearly being deceitful. But there's no word from the fleet that's been sent. There's no word of the fleet of the other three legions that I mentioned before. And there is an astropath comes in. They have a chat. And they learn that Mars is falling at the same time. And there's a really good description of both Sigismund's and Dorn's feelings at this. And I think... What I liked about this most of all was that previously we've said and probably hearkened on too much that it was it's meant to be unthinkable for all of the Astartes to fight each other. And then given the first opportunity, they fucking jump in, no problems. And then there was a little bit of nodding and waving at some sort of emotional impact. But Sigismund is like basically shaking from anger and Dorn is just like stony faced and there is a really good description they use the term hatred here which seems like a very which seems right to me that they just fucking hate these traitor legions and don't understand why they've done what they've done and they just are so full of fucking hate and I I felt it really came across really well in this yeah, because one, one problem I have with these books is like constantly being told, oh yeah, the Space Marines couldn't feel fear, but here's the way in which they basically were feeling fear. And I just feel like they should have done, I think, because I think this bit does it quite well though, isn't it? where it says, yeah, it wasn't so much fear as just like pure hatred or yeah. it's in that same sort of conversation. And like, but yeah, it just made me think like, it, 
Because the way they describe it is like space marines are made in such a way that they literally cannot feel fear. So then they're having to perform like verbal acrobatics to basically say it wasn't fear, but it was like (laughs) kind of fear. Exactly. Um, Uh, It's a really boring story of like space marines versus massive alien monsters if there is no fear around. There's got to be something. And why didn't they just make it that, like, that's what people say about Space Marines, that they have no fear? You know what I mean? Or that's yeah, the propaganda. Yeah. It's total propaganda. And the face, Space Marines are just, like, going, oh, God, you, you got to live up to all of these things that are said about us. Or am I not meant to be feeling fear? Because yeah. they're, they've got, they're so, like, emotionally crippled things that they're not going to talk about these things. They, they just know what is meant, what they're meant to be. And yet they're, like, they internally they realize they're not anything like that because that that would immediately be so much more interesting except it's it's stated very explicitly on many occasions nope they just they literally cannot feel fear mm-hmm. you know what i mean um, yeah. despite the fact that then basically essentially shows them feeling fear but anyway that's a side note mars is falling there's it, it really feels like dawn is just like every motherfucker is against me right now like it it, it felt very good so cut back to Fal. Alexis Pollux is he's back up and running. He has a council with his other commanders. The astropaths are dying in trying to receive messages, but they're failing, they're not getting anything. This is where they there is discord over whether to remain and defend or uh, go back to Earth or to continue the mission and that kind of thing. And then one of our old favorites, a psychic wave hits them. <laughs> and it, even the space marines have this are, are hit with visions of death and madness and fear the warp and the human crew are going mad and killing each other and that kind of thing there's an interesting bit where one of the servitor vomits data code which <laughs> i thought i really liked it. i thought that was funny now we know the servitors keep data code in their stomachs um but that was um and <laughs> regrettably a lot of the human crews have shit themselves. It's very sad. They think this is an attack because it's rendered them pretty, at least the human crew, scared. And it cuts to Alexis drilling his team, like they're like a breaching team. And he has got like a lot on his mind. He is questioning himself because he is not one of these heroes, Sigismund, who basically, whose position he has usurped in this fleet. He, that's proven by the fact that he only became a space marine because his brother helped him out. And so he doesn't feel, I guess in a little, little bit like what we were talking about, he does not feel like the archetypal space marine and he feels like he can't measure up and so he is questioning uh, his own decisions and that kind of stuff. And so he makes a mistake in this battle drill and some of his friends come up and pat him on the back and go oh we all make mistakes and he goes no we don't let's go again and they are broken out of this drilling to go and find a well a cube a metal cube with a human torso in it which is badly described but somehow alexis knows that this was the source of the psychic scream but it wasn't an attack it was a message it was a prelude to a real attack again I read this bit a few times. Not sure how he was so certain about this, but he was spot on. Fair play to the guy. And the attack is from uh, the Iron Warriors. Mixed up. Iron Warriors, yeah, with led by Perturabo. 
and here, just a call back to I think the last episode or the one before. There's another warning here about being the bearer of bad news to Primarchs. <laughs> yes, there is. Because so, Perkarab was like, sweet, we're going to take out Sigismund here, I think, because mm-hmm. he sort of understandably assumes that he's leading this fleet. Um, and someone's, no, it's this dude, Alexis Pollux, captain of the lower orders. <laughs> it's just this, <laughs> someone called Barossa's telling him this, and it immediately says, The first blow in the chest, armor plate and bone shattered, one of his hearts burst. The second blow hit him as he spun through the air, he hit the wall with crushing force, slid down. So this goes on for a while, and it ends with, He was a bag of mashed meat held into the shape of a man by ruined armor. <laughs> and, and remember, this is the start of the heresy. Like, <laughs> Perdurabo has not had enough time to be like, turned into a monster yet <laughs> so he has he been doing this all the time or there are a lot of primarchs who are not quite living up to their standards let's say and <laughs> like, what was the, the last story was about the blood angels and yeah to be fair to him he just like punched the guy a wee bit but this guy like or like punched him the guy that brought him bad news he like punched him or kicked him a couple of times but this Pertrabo properly destroyed this guy get the um, impression that Sanguinius went over and picked him up and brushed the dust off his shoulders and stuff and just went <laughs> sorry sorry about that a bit of a temper <laughs> me you know me anyway uh, yeah, Pertrabo doesn't even have that level of self-reflection he just <laughs> carries on until he's killed them and then probably just doesn't mention it again Just uh, well can't. yeah he just goes that, well, that seems to be a bag of meat over there that's appropriate <laughs> that's fine that's, it seems to be more and more of those around my rooms these days but anyway so yeah cut to the palace as, as you said Sigismund has this deceit that he just cannot hold in anymore and no actually Sigismund is thinking about that at this time Sigismund is thinking about the the deceitful thing that he has performed over Dorne when the astropath brings news of Istvan and so that's legions complete legions destroyed one primarch dead two on the uh, two missing this is essentially the worst news that has ever happened <laughs> to yeah. humanity really and Dorne is just like fully furious so is Sigismund and he tells the astropath to send a message to the remaining fleet to bring them home and once again very good sense of hatred in this of just fury a lack of understanding of what these what their enemies are are doing like why would you do this they just cannot understand and and of complete hatred and it's then that we have Sigismund's plan to tell Dorne the truth and it comes down to Euphrates Keeler again he bumped into her whenever they told everybody about the treachery and she spoke to him and she at that point had become known as this sort of I don't know if she was a saint or not then but she was like a, a seer she had knowledge and, and basically imparted to Sigismund that his he needed to make a decision he needed to be by Dorne's side or go to the war on Istvan. One one way led de- lay death, one way led to not salvation, but to fulfilling his need of protecting his Primarch and, and, and that kind of thing. And Dorn, you go through Dorn's reaction. Well, he's really upset about it. He's, wait a minute, so obviously Dorn's not 
he's not one of the sort of magic curious of the Primarchs at all, yeah. is he? He's no. not. He's very much walls and defenses and just stalwart physical fighting and so he's stalwart physical fighting and so he's like wait a minute you essentially defied my order on the words of a a mystic and he's like don't come to me with this fucking bullshit you're dead to me but just carry on I'm not going to kick you out or kill you or anything like that but it was good because he said that at, at this time we can't have another betrayal and he says he's been betrayed. And this is one of the interactions between the Primarch and one of his sons that I like fully believed. Because Dorne is like at the edge of his tether. He's yeah. got a lot of shit to deal with. He's been dealing with nothing but betrayal after betrayal. And now his favourite son says he's betrayed him again. And Dorne is obviously all duty, honour. You've got to follow the rules. He, he was that kind of person anyway. But obviously he would be more so now with all of this betrayal happening. Sigismund said, I've, I did this in order to better fight the fight that is coming. And Dorne says, if you, if that was the case, you would have stood up for what the Imperium is all about, which is following orders and that kind of thing. Uh, and says that you, you only did it to satisfy your own desire for glory, desire for martial valor. And Sigismund like gives him his sword and says, you can kill me now if you want. But Doran says, no, we can't have another fucking betrayal known amongst everyone. You've got to be Sigismund, the, the, the undefeated champion that everybody needs, but know that I fucking hate you and you're not a, <laughs> you're not a son anymore uh, of mine. Sigismund has, this is, a, this is where it, it's just a little bit weak. He says that he knows he, he knew about that. This is the price that he must pay to be where he needs to be, and he'll he'll suck it up and, and sacrifice whatever it is that needs to be sacrificed in order to, to do it. It would have been nice to have a bit a bit more conflict in there. It felt again, it felt very real. It felt like somebody a father being disappointed by the betrayal of his son. It felt very good. That's a fair point. Because like, when it first happened, I was like, that's a, that's a bit of an overreaction. But <laughs> but uh, I suppose you're right. Like with this picture that you've been building up of Dorne just being completely like, this terrible thing's happened, this terrible thing. Or just all these completely earth-shattering revelations coming one after the other. And then this comes and it would just be like, he snapped in his reaction to... Sigismund. And then the story kind of contrasts this with the situation going on out in space with the fleet um, under Alexis Pollux's command. So he'd been setting up this defence and he, he'd done it very effectively because the Iron Warriors fleet was coming in and they were actually making a really good job of fighting against him in the sort of defensive formation that yeah. they set up. And so that's all going quite well. Then the messages that you just mentioned from the astropaths, from Dorne via the astropaths, um, comes to them and it's, uh, this is a message from Rogel Dorne, come back to Terra right now. <laughs> I just, I, this is where this falls apart because they basically just go, they send a message out once they receive that message from Dorne, where they just go, forget all discipline, forget all battle knowledge, run! And they, <laughs> they just fucking well, turn around and go. Yeah, it's, so they're like, yeah, I know. I suppose it is a little bit silly in a way, but like they're they're like, if we do this, that what we've just been told to do, we're gonna in the middle of this battle, we're just gonna suddenly turn all our ships around, 
like it's going to be a carnage like their yeah. woods of them are going to get destroyed and and they've also sent like a kill team after Perdurabo and they can't get free and so yeah. they're just they're dead as well yeah so they're just like <laughs> so yeah I suppose it's like just taken very like as unlike Sigismund he's taken orders at the very literal level <laughs> yeah. that seemingly Rogaldorn wants them to be taken based on that exchange and, and he's like, let's just go literally right now even if it means a large number of us will die and, and these ships will be destroyed so they do that and they're all turning around and running away and then the Iron Warriors are like who had been starting to lose the battle are like, shit this is great we can just mop them all up now as yeah. they're stopping fighting us so yeah you've got this squad that's this bunch of kill team that's trying to kill Perturabo and uh, the ship that Alexis Pollux is on they, they do some kind of manoeuvre where again this is not the only time in this collection or indeed in the series where this um, happens where turns out it turns out that you can just teleport onto your enemy's ship quite easily <laughs> but they, they so they like the ship that Alexis Pollux is on they do this trick where they teleport onto an enemy ship and take it over. They, they turn full pirate and steal, I think it's Golg, he's like one of the captains of the Iron Warriors, and they steal his ship. Yeah, and and while this is going on the, the so the kill team, I think this is the kill team anyway, I've got, a, I've got a good quote here, or just, I find it funny anyway, where they're fighting through uh, and I'm not even sure what this thing is, if it's like a chaos thing or some sort of robotic thing. But anyway, they're fighting through corridor after corridor of the enemy. And then one of them, and I was like, is this the new, is this the new flesh change? Because one of them shouts, <laughs> one of them shouts, fire wasp! Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right, I remember that. I remember reading that just going, fire wasp, what the fuck? It certainly, certainly emits flame. Um... It has weapon pods. I'm just reading the description. It has curved armor plates. There's maybe some sort of robotic thing. I'm not sure, but I think it is. I don't because it doesn't. I don't think there's demonic stuff happening here. Yeah, yeah I don't think yeah. so. And then that's essentially it. But it has a really sort of Twilight Zone kind of moment where the you they take that stolen ship and run with everybody else, but they tumble through the warp for seemingly endless amounts of time the human crew are dying from old age and this kind of shit and then they come out at what is like an unrecognizable terror it's like fully like autumn what was like beautiful the the beauty of the imperium from their day is turned into like a full military horror scape thing and i'm not sure whether it was meant to be that like they just arrived back to see the full like scale of Dorne's recreation of of the the Sol system, or whether they had been following for like ages through the warp and had come out in like the modern day forty k. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I I'm not sure. It it doesn't answer that, but it does just seem in sci-fi those sci-fi movies maybe of the eighties when there would be like a little post-credits scene. Or something which would change things up. The merciless laughing in Flash or, Gordon or something. 
Yeah, or it makes you think of it. It's not quite the same sort of thing, but like the end of Army of Darkness, Evil Dead Two. Yeah, when, yeah. When he like goes, or it's one of the end, isn't it? There's alternative endings, but he like takes the potion to return to his time, but actually takes too much of it and comes out into some sort of post-apocalyptic landscape. Yeah, I know what you mean that type of ending. But so, who wrote that one? We didn't actually say who wrote that. Was by John French. John French. Okay, so. Next story is, which is a short story, is The Dark King by Graham McNeil. And this one has Dorne in it as well. We start off in a situation where Dorne uh, and his crew and the, what's his name? Conrad Kurz. Uh, is that his name? Conrad Kurz of the Night Lords. Of the Night Lords, yeah. And I think there's one other Legion there, maybe. There's the Emperor's Children. Yeah, so they are carrying out a compliance of a system or something here. <laughs> and Dorn, Dorn's chastising Kurz because he's like uh, carrying out some sort of mass murder. He's killing prisoners. Yeah, that's it, yeah. On the, and he's like, oh. And he's got. We hear that he has. And I was like, yeah, I think these books are pretty queer that bad hair is a signifier of evil. Because <laughs> um, he has apparently lank hair. Oh no! Around his neck, um, and the, they have a discussion, and it's about it's the nature of instilling imperial values. Kurz performs this little sort of experiment, where he, he tells one of them to like, "Here's a gun, shoot me," and to the prisoner says no, and he goes. Are you afraid that I'll kill you if you shoot me? And he goes, yeah, I, and that's a fair. <laughs> and he says to all his like warriors, this man is not to be touched. Whatever he does, do not touch him. And as if that's going to fucking, the guy is just going to be like, oh, fine. I'll just walk out of here. But it does. The guy like picks up the gun and shoots Kurz. And Kurz like, obviously dodges and fucking garrots the guy to death or whatever it is. And he says, do you see, Dorn, if you remove the fear of punishment, then the people will backslide back to their old ways. And Dorn is, no, that's a, stu- that's a fucking stupid example, which it is. But there, there, is a, there is the, Dorn says, no, we must show these people the strength of imperial values and that they can become part of the Imperium. And the Night Lords are like, nah. We just got to make them scared of us, so completely, totally afraid of us that they won't fuck with us. So it's it's the it's the sort of authoritarian regime versus the sort of culturally superior regime, sort of uh, old argument. And he tells us Kurz has been having visions of a sort of galaxy in flames for a long time, basically, yeah. and he shares them with Fulgrim, who then later just tells all that to Dorn, I think. Dorn confronts him about these things and, and his sort of other atrocities. And we learn that, like, he attacks him. Kurz attacks him and almost kills him. And we see that Kurz is later imprisoned, but gets by his jailers by, and this is a quote, becoming one with the dark. <laughs> which is very good and he's the night haunter that's his nickname so he kills a few people and gets past them all and Kurz like learns of the his home planet Nostromo that law the law and order has completely broken down and he's a kind of Rorschach 
from uh, Watchmen here. He says that he will destroy his own planet because it's a shame for him that these people have fucking backslided again. He needs to make everyone even more afraid. And he says he'll take the burden of the act on himself because he has to be the very scary one in order to instill that fear into his enemies. So he's a bit of a prick and a real self-pity. But we also know that he has foreknowledge of his own death, which, again, is led... We're meant to believe that is like a, a constant haunting of him like that has led to him to be this sort of haunted character and has led to his like his darkness his internal darkness but we all know of our own deaths or at least it's all gonna happen he apparently knows the way of his own death so fucking what do you know like this story this so this is all like pre heresy essentially isn't it the, this particular story and here's just another example of a primark we all heard the chat about how shocked everyone the very notion that a space marine could kill another space marine and here's like this primark's just slaughtered multiple of Dorne's yeah. elite guards on his way out of this prison anyway just a, a wee thing there yeah but it, I don't like the night lords I think they're stupid but it's it at least gave a sort of motivation that I can believe that. I can believe this motivation. I really liked the conversation that happens that we'll get to in the next step. I think in the final novella of this collection called uh, Prince of Crows, yeah, there's, a, discu- there's a discussion between Sevatar and uh, Kurs about the destruction of Nostromo and why it happened and about this idea of using uh, fear being the most powerful means of social control and there is a very good discussion that i really like very much that i would i look forward to talking about later yeah yeah so that one covers in more detail a lot of the same ground to this little story so on to the next one which is the lightning tower by damn the daddy abnett so yeah uh, it's like set you up for that there <laughs> thanks very much yeah it's it we see like the unification of terra and we see the imperial palace being built to imprint that unification to, to solidify that that control and then dorn changing the palace from that sort of sign of of imperial strength into a defensive fortress and he is, yeah, we learn more about the dismantling of the the artistry with the plan for it to be reconstructed, but clearly it never is. See, I was like, when I, I was looking at my notes and, and flicking through the story again, and I was like, is this the one where Doran's lamenting having to do all this stuff, or is, is it happening in both of them? Because there's definitely stuff here where it's he's talking to some builder guy and he's like oh, this is all ugly stuff from having to build here and yeah. you know it's shit but I don't know maybe it's in both of them but it's, it's I, I think you certainly got the impression in the first one but I think there was a, it was much more explicit in this one as well so there's some there's referring back to the how people yeah at this time of unity came together to um, build the imperial palace that Dorne is now having to deface with his defensive structures and it talks about how even the artisan masters 
of the Masonic guilds, famous for their sanctimonious craft wars. That's a fucking great. I would read that book series, the sanctimonious <laughs> craft wars. We exactly. should we we should write that down for a possible Christmas episode. <laughs> I think <laughs> that was pretty much exactly my thought as well. There's a it's good in that it gives a good idea of who Dorn is. That he is a like he he. he a true believer let's say in 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 that idea of the crusade and the imperium being like good and he regrets every, pretty much every part of what he's doing because it the, the thing that he's doing itself is destroying the thing that he is trying to defend and it's it gets that across well and also the fact that he may also just be like a total fool like a just a, like a patsy, just this silly, naive, true believer who's going through all these motions, and you just think, "Oh, God, this guy's a, just a fool." But it, it's it, I, th- I thought it very well described and, and, and illustrated all of those things. And then, like I referred to earlier, there's a whole. So he goes to this, which I think we've seen before. He's in this bit where there's all the statues of the Primarchs. And, and even the traitor ones, even or even the forgotten ones. Yeah, it talks about the empty, the two vacant points, and but even the but the ones that have like recently got involved in the heresy, they've just had. Um, and Dorn's sitting like talking about who, what he's really afraid of, and it's, it's this idea, this axiom of defense is to understand what you defend against. What are you afraid of? And he's so he sort of goes through them, and he's like, yeah, he's a prick, but I'm not afraid of him. <laughs> the night hunter punched me in the face and cut my throat but that doesn't matter and Horace couldn't beat me in a fight but then he yeah just as you say he he says that he can't understand why anybody would go against the emperor how can he defend against those that are coming when he just doesn't understand the idea of heresy and treachery at all and yeah and so it's basically if I remember correctly that's what bothers him is just like trying to think about why why they've they've committed the betrayal basically is what is well, that's what you're scared of is what is the reason for this whereas you're just like Dorn it's obviously chaos monsters you, you should know that by now and yeah one thing about this this was like a story where not much really it was, it was perfectly fine it was in just digging into a bit of a character's thoughts I like this a lot yeah and like but not much really happened no it's purely character building yeah uh, we've we've talked at length about how these Primarchs aren't characters and the holes that they have. And uh, I really enjoyed both of these stories because it was just that. He also says that like, when Fulgrim told him about the, the, the fits and the visions and that he was attacked, he, the, the, the Night Hunter, Conrad Kurz, told him about his visions of the destruction of the Imperium and war and death and all of that kind of stuff. And Dorne regrets that he essentially had foreknowledge of the heresy and he wished he had listened to him. He was also haunted by. So it was, yeah, it was, I, I just thought it was like so fresh and so unusual, so unlike anything that we've read before. Both of these stories, what are they, the Lightning Tower and the, the Dark King, they, they sort of seem like companion pieces and they are, yeah, I just thought they were great. Yeah, I think just 
if I remember rightly from the afterward bit, they did appear together in 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 some form. Yes, mm-hmm. you're right about making companion pieces. Now, just just a, an observation here, and this is not um, unique to this story, of course, but so it refers to one of these like builders or architects or whatever that's going around the Imperial Palace, and it, so it casually mentions him allowing his flock of slaves to finish laying out the designs and adjusting the brass armature of the Viennese. Now, this seems like another area where, and I know, wait, like, there's a we've had these kind of conversations plenty of times and it's like on one hand you're like well yeah you just accept that these stories are not like exploring um, important issues and great depth and stuff like that but but they do they do act like they are sometimes so I think there's something to be said about there's all this language of like the Imperium's justification is like that they were uh, freeing the, the humans of the galaxy from the tyranny of fear or these like irrational as they see it like beliefs and superstitions and all this and so they're a for they even they use the word enlightenment of these people and then it's like casually mentioned quite a lot that like people they're just going around having a full system of slavery <laughs> yeah um, and like i feel like this is just it's a missed opportunity to have something more about the it's sort of similar to the point i was making earlier about fear how that would be more interesting if it was like about that they are said to not have fear Mm -hmm. and then the idea that's a sort of propaganda and the same thing with this if it was actually addressed but the slaves the slaves are just like it's just a bit of world building rather than i feel like that's quite a fundamental thing if you have a society that has slavery that says a lot about that society. It's not just like a little yeah. thing. And I really feel like that should be addressed more and contrasted with their ideology. Yeah. And and the the fact that it's not makes you think that... And, and I know this isn't the case, but it, it makes you think that the author is sort of... Yeah, slaves is all right. I think they're just thinking... I just think it's not addressed. It's just like this is a horrible world... And it's acknowledged that the people aren't writing this usually from the point of view of everything actually being great in the Imperium. I mean, yeah. It's, no, um, yeah, that's fair. But they don't like. It's just not really. It's just just. Yeah, at least it's, in this instance, it's set dressing. It's not yeah, really. It's um, a it's a source of interest that is just completely overlooked. And I guess it's frustrating for all of these interesting th- sources of of conflict and and storytelling to be completely just thrown to the wayside in favour yeah. of having another space shark. And I just wish <laughs> that like they they could they could mix other things in and, and that I think that's why I like these stories so much is that they have mixed these in and um th- these are unusual. Get more of this into the actual books themselves let's not have a short story right let's every six novels will have a short story about a primark to make everybody hate the primarchs less that doesn't make sense do it in the book no every six novels will have a short story in which someone's allowed to have feelings and then but uh yeah but i think like that just to sum up because that's those that's all we're looking at in this episode and then next episode we'll be on to the remaining i believe three short stories and one novella in this book and uh, we're stopping there because it's roughly halfway through and these ones are all linked i don't i really don't want to talk very much about the caban project so we can maybe skip over that (laughs) but 
all in all, I think this opinion certainly holds for me in both parts of this, probably more even in the second part. But we've had a bunch of, I think this is, I think we've, prior to this, we've had two short story collections and then we had the book of novellas. And I think we pretty much really didn't like the novellas. Yeah. Um, the short story collections is obviously quite a while ago, but I remember them being quite a mixed bag. And this this is obviously, as the the editor of it, the collection acknowledges, it's an uneven collection because there's a bit of sort of stuff thrown together. But all in all, quite good, I thought. Yeah, I will never have a go at a short story collection for being hit and miss. It should always be hit and miss. You should always be like doing interesting things and different things and some things will work and some things won't and some people will like some things i i actually really like that about short stories and so this reads very strangely because it it is so like this here's a huge piece and here's a bit that's only a couple of pages long and stuff but it's it was really good like i really enjoyed the stuff yeah like i I just think compared to the others in the series this is definitely the best collection of this sort in in my head um right so that's that's all we're doing for today i guess that just leaves us to thank everybody for listening we appreciate it we obviously don't spend any money on advertising or promotion or really do any work whatsoever (laughs) towards doing that so someday we'll get a website someday we'll get a twitter feed what the fuck but until that happens we and, it, and it's not going to happen. Let's face it. No, I was like, speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> you can administer that one. Yeah, the only way we get more people to listen is word of mouth. So we'd really appreciate it if people went out, wrote some reviews, told friends, whatever it is people do nowadays. Who the fuck knows? Anyway, <laughs> if, you, if you wouldn't mind doing it, it wouldn't like be too embarrassing that would be great we really appreciate it and we will uh, see you again in two weeks time as we finish off this awesome collection of little stories yep see you then bye